where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, how are you doing today? Absolutely fantastic. We had Ben Hunt on the podcast. Ben Hunt is a very well-respected writer in the legacy world. He is the writer of Epsilon Theory Newsletter, and he does a fantastic job bringing in new ways to think about the world to an audience that might not have gotten exposed to it. And uh, the, the need and demand for the thinking that Ben Hunt offers to the world is definitely well reflected in the size and community that he's generated around his Epsilon Theory newsletter. Yeah, I've been reading Epsilon Theory forever, David. It's just um, a fantastic body of work. And I think the main ideas, the core ideas, Ben started this this newsletter in 2013, the core ideas have really played out like he's been right. The world is turning into a place that is valued more by narrative than by fundamentals. And he caught that switch very early. And I think he's got a lot to teach us in the crypto space about how narratives and game theory affect asset prices and virtually everything around us. They really are the base layer of the human experience. That's the social layer. And so we get into these topics and then we get a chance to apply them to crypto at the end. We really wanted to get Ben's perspective on crypto and to bring these mental models that he's come up with in, in creative for, as he said, David, the legacy world to crypto and uh, get his thoughts on it. So he shares that at the end too. This is just a fantastic interview, incredibly fascinating. I think you will pick up new mental models. You'll be able to apply them both to the legacy world and equities and what's going on with central banks and also to apply them to crypto. So I really think you're going to enjoy this one. We talk a lot on the Bankless Podcast about narratives, about memes, and how they are baked into these systems. And so the crypto world is pretty familiar, I would say, with the world of narrative and the world of memes. And I think we appreciate it more than the the rest of the world, right? And what Ben Hunt is doing, in my opinion, is bringing that perspective to the legacy system using different words other than like memes, because you know it's very that, the word meme is is much more relevant to to crypto. But in, in the legacy world, it's, it's, it's the narrative, right? And Ben Hunt calls this the epsilon, where he talks about the alpha and the beta, but then there's also the epsilon, which is uh, the, the human side of things. And the, the world, in my opinion, is separated into the physical world of atoms and science and physics, but then there's also the world of the stories that, the human, that, that, that humans create in order to determine what is valuable, right? So how to act based off of what we know. And that's what Ben Hunt is doing in the legacy system. And so why Ben Hunt is such a good guest for the Bankless podcast is because he's taking some of the things that we know, the story side of things, the narrative side of things, and he's applying it to the legacy markets and applying it to investing in a world that we thought was perhaps based off of, you know, hard facts and evidence and and fundamentals, but turns out it's actually based off of narratives and stories. And so this is really where we overlap with Ben Hunt. And so getting him onto the Bankless podcast to talk about these things was an absolute treat. All right, we're going to bring Ben Hunt on in just a few seconds. But first, we want to tell you about our sponsors. 
as we all go westward, we need to get our values into the crypto world, but hopefully escape the tyranny of centralized rent-seeking institutions. And that's where Monolith can help you get your value into the crypto world while skipping over the crypto banks. Monolith, coming soon to Monolith, is an on-ramp directly from your old world bank account into your smart contract wallet on Ethereum. And for those that don't know, Monolith also has a DeFi card, which uses DAI in your smart contract wallet, but on the Visa network. So you can go to the, your grocery store, swipe your DeFi card, pay for your groceries like a normal person, and still be part of the crypto bankless, crypto economic future that we are all excited about. So you can get your value from your bank account directly into your crypto Visa card without having to go through any crypto bank intermediary, which is just absolutely fantastic. So in order to get started, go to monolith.xyz and get your bankless Visa card today. So the biggest thing that's holding crypto back is actually getting fiat into the system, moving from that old world to the new crypto world. What you have to do is create an account with an exchange. You have to wire funds. That's also holding your app back if you are a DeFi developer and are building something on a network like Ethereum. What that means is in the fiat process, your users drop off when they're signing up and you're limiting your market to the hardcore crypto people. But what if you could make it super easy to on-ramp to your application using a fiat on-ramp? Ramp is that. It is a delightfully easy fiat on-ramp. It lets first-time crypto users get ETH and DAI, USDC, whatever asset they want in five minutes or less. So this reduces the dropout rate and lets you build products for the real world. Zerion is using it. Ethereum is using it. Taurus is using it. DeFi apps that you probably know and use today are using it. What you need to do is check this out and visit ramp.network to see how easy it is. You can get set up in 10 minutes or less and 100x your addressable market size as a developer. This is like the ultimate growth hack. And when you mention Bankless, they'll on-ramp the first 100K in US dollars for free. So go to ramp.network, mention Bankless, and get started. All right, guys, now that that's done, let's go ahead and get right into the interview with Dr. Ben Hunt. Bankless Nation, we are incredibly excited and honored to have Dr. Ben Hunt. He is a former fund manager, tech entrepreneur, poli-sci professor. He's the writer of Epsilon Theory, which I read frequently. He writes narratives about game theory for investors and in general for people trying to understand the world. And I would be remiss if I didn't say he's actually part of the inspiration for starting the Bankless newsletter for me personally. Ben, how are you doing in these <laughs> uncertain times, sir? I'm doing great, Ryan. Well, well, well thanks for that introduction. And I'm uh, so glad to, 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 to hear that you know, something good came out of, out of my work if it, if, it, if it helped inspire you guys. And uh, also, hello to David behind the glass, as, uh, as they say on the radio. Hello, hello. Cheers and welcome. <laughs> well, absolutely. We, we are just so excited to, uh, to talk with you today because... I think, I mean, you talk so much about communities and about, um, you, you, you call it the pack. Yep. Um, and, uh, you mm -hmm. know, bankless, we, we, sort of, we, we sort of use the analogy of the nation for the bankless pack because it's kind of a tribe that's rallied around some similar ideas to the ideas you're talking about yep. on Epsilon Theory all of the time. 
So what we'd really love to talk about today is some of those common base values between our communities, mm -hmm. between crypto and between the Epsilon theory movement. I would call it a movement. Um, you, you've talked about the lowercase l values like freedom and liberty, uh, you know, and thought and the lowercase c values. Yep, yep. Yep, small small L liberal and small C conservative. Yep, exactly. And uh, those are, I think are values base values that uh, our communities share. So we just want to explore some of those and honestly expose the Bankless Nation to some of your fantastic ideas because they are so relevant to crypto. What else is crypto except narratives and game theory? And that's uh, that's, that's right. a lot that's right. about what you talk about. Yep. Um, so. Um, I guess Ben, maybe maybe to start, we could uh, set some context for one of your biggest ideas, mm -hmm. which is um, rooted in the epsilon theory name itself. Um, you know, kind of where you got the name, where you came up with the name, what this what this epsilon, uh, what what the meaning of epsilon actually is, and maybe we could talk a little bit to to introduce folks to. A, an idea that comes from science, which is the the three body problem. So, mm -hmm. could you describe maybe the three body problem, and then let's talk a little bit about the meaning of epsilon and uh, how it can explain the world? Yeah, yeah, you bet, Ryan. In, in fact, if you, you know, if you don't mind, I'll kind of flip that around. I'll, I'll kind of describe what what epsilon is first, and and kind of why I call what I do. Um, and, and you're right, I, I I do hope. It's a it's a movement, right? I, I do call it uh, epsilon theory, and kind of where that comes from. Uh, so, you know, in I started writing epsilon theory. Uh, this would be the the summer of 2013, right? So uh, just a little over seven years ago. And you know, I I I wound down my hedge fund. We can talk about that in a little bit. It was, it was a big hedge fund. We we had about a billion dollars there. And uh, I was trying to make sense of a world that, from an investment perspective, didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me anymore. And, you know, my background from, from academic days and, you know, professorial days was in game theory. I, you know, it's always so silly, you know, people say, oh, well, there's, you know, game theory. And it has become kind of a meme in and of itself, kind of, of kind of silly, silly science. So, I mean, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a real thing. And I spent a lot of years. Oh, oh, we love game right? theory. Yeah. We love right. game theory and crypto. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I knew I wanted to, to, to write this note and blog, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I was trying to figure out what to, what to call it. And what I finally hit on was that in, in investing the core I'll call it formula, right? The core uh, econometric description of what investing is, is that the, the, the value of your portfolio, the, the, the performance of your investments depends on alpha. You know, we, you see that in places like blogs like Seeking Alpha and, you know, people talk about hedge funds and what's your alpha. Alpha is basically your outperformance, Right, alpha is the the idiosyncratic performance of your portfolio. What's what's special about you? Right, that's your alpha, and then your performance is also your beta, which is how much of your 
portfolio, your performance goes up and down with 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 broad markets, right? So 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 beta, it's it's you know the performance of the the, the overall market and how closely linked you are to that, and then alpha is your idiosyncratic performance. You know what 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 you do that's special to you. But those those actually aren't the only two terms in this econometric formula. Uh, and in fact, in, in almost every econometric formula, there there's a third term or a, or a final term that's tacked on to the end, and it's the epsilon term. So in in this formula, the the full formula, if you write it out, it's not just oh your performance is alpha plus beta, it's alpha plus beta plus epsilon. And 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 epsilon is you know the Greek letter E. And the way people think of it is, well, that's E for error. Yeah, right? It's it's everything that's left <laughs> over that you can't explain from your uh, variables and your formulation, whatever goes into your calculation of alpha. And it's all the stuff we don't understand. It's all the stuff we don't understand. Yeah. That's exactly right. All the stuff that's outside of your... Uh, formalization of alpha and beta. Like I say, look at any econometric formula in, in any field, and there's always this tacked on epsilon term, E for error. And the truth is, and this is a truth that comes after, you know, a lot of years and a lot of scars in, uh, you know, lots of different fields, but but including investing, is that you know, there is a lot we don't understand. And just because we don't understand it, just because we don't formalize it in whatever we are putting into our conceptualization of alpha and beta, doesn't mean it's not real. and doesn't mean that it's error. It means that it's outside of our scope of thinking. Well, you, you've used and, the analogy of dark yeah. matter, right, Ben, to describe that? Yeah, 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 like yeah. That's a, that's a great way to think about it. That's a great way to think about it. So, so, so the epsilon term is, yeah, think about it as like the dark matter in the universe, which you know, as you know, you know, dark matter and dark energy, you know, it's probably ninety-five percent <laughs> of what's out there in the universe. It's just we can't see it or measure it or understand it, so we just kind of put it over there to the side, and we spend all our time talking about the the 5% that we can see and measure and visualize and all like that. So in, in investing, what is particularly left out of alpha and beta, and what is particularly, I think, frankly, something we can extract from epsilon, is the strategic behavior of market participants. That's a mouthful, right? What I mean by that is, there's this old poker saying, right, that you don't just play the cards, you also play the players. And the cards, think of those as the fundamentals, right? So that's going to be in alpha and beta. But playing the player, that's not in alpha and beta. That's in epsilon. And playing the player is as good a description, an informal description of what game theory is as anything I know. That's what game theory is, is trying to understand how do you play the player, right? Not just playing the cards, but playing the player. So so that's what epsilon theory is all about. It's trying to look at the strategic interaction of market participants. It's trying to look at the strategic behavior of 
investors, of voters, of, of, of any sort of social interaction. Because, you know, like your example about dark matter and, and invisible matter, I, I really think that in, in a lot of times and circumstances, it is that strategic interaction. It is that playing the player that's so much more important than just playing the cards you're dealt. So, you know, that I, I started writing Epsilon Theory. I, I sent it out, you know, an email to about 100 people. And today we've got, you know, over 100,000 people on that, on that email list and, you know, get about a, a quarter of a million people a month to the, to the website. And that's all from word of mouth. You know, we've never done any marketing, never any advertising or anything around it. And I, look, I, I think I'm a pretty good writer and, and, and I think that's, you know, I, I like to think that, but, but that's not really what's responsible for the appetite for this, for the growth of this. What's responsible, and I'm certain of it, is that, you know, we are told over and over again, you know, these, these, these overly scientific and I'll say overly didactic kind of pronouncements about how to understand the world. And, and when you're in the world for a while, you realize, hey, you know, the world's a lot more than that. That, that the world is so much about stories and narratives and the way that impacts our behavior. All of this stuff is outside of the rules that we're told that, that, that govern markets or voting and all like that. And, and, and I think that as, as people have, frankly, woken up or been forced to confront the fact that these old rules don't work. I mean, I mean, frankly, I don't think they ever worked that well, but we all believed in them so, so that they did. You know, it's, 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 it's really interesting to see over the last seven years, 10 years, whatever you want to call it, that I think everybody is now thinking in terms of narrative and playing the player and these strategic interactions. And, and I think that's so important for coming to grips with the real power structure of the world and frankly, what we can do to change it. So anyway, a, a long involved conversation, but, but, it's, but it's, it's, it's important to me, this notion of epsilon and, and why I call what I do epsilon theory. So Ben, I have always thought that like, if you want to win in the investing game, like, you have to do what you said, which is to play the player along with playing the beta and also trying to play the alpha, right? Like you can't, you have to pay attention to all three yep. of these things. They're, they're interlocking Absolutely. with each other and there is like this rock, paper, scissors game, but it's the playing yep. the player side of things, the epsilon side of things that uh, we are thinking is perhaps underappreciated or undervalued. And when we discuss about like how to play the market, what we're really talking about is like trying to understand like if I do this, then they do that. And if they do that, then I'll do this. And, we, and it's this uh, hall of mirrors of trying to put yourself in the shoes of other people playing, playing the market, right? And so, and this is just converges back onto game theory, right? So like, if I do this, uh, if my if my opponent does this, and I'm going to do this, and then that recurses over and over and over again. And what to me, yep. what epsilon is is the substrate for thinking what your opponent is going to do, right? And so, 
it is the, uh, the the narrative of sorts of the world that we live in, what we perceive to be valuable based off of the narratives that we share are how we try and frame what we think our opponents are going to do, right? And so um, it, it, we're spe- I'm speaking in very general terms, so it's pretty difficult to make something concrete. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but, but, but listen, you're, you're, you're exactly right because this, this strategic interaction, game playing, right? It's not random, and 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 there 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 are. I'll call them rules, but but what I mean by rules is there are predictable uh, patterns, predictable because they're very rational, predictable patterns in human behavior, in these sort of strategic settings. So the 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 one that I think is most powerful for markets, the one that I think is 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 most powerful for really any sort of social market, and that can be investing markets, that can be voting markets, is certainly true for, 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 for crypto markets, is the, the strategic interaction of what's called the common knowledge game. And, you know, we're, we're all familiar with a couple of games, right? We're all familiar with Prisoner's Dilemma, because you see that on every police procedural TV show, right? That's, that's one where they, they question two people in separate rooms, and the the, the predictable behavior, you know, to use the $10 economic word, the equilibrium is that both prisoners will rat each other out. It's, it's the smart move. It's the rational thing to do. Now, there are ways to get around that, right, by setting up structures of the game that reward or punish ratting someone out, right? So if you know you're going to be sent to prison with the buddies of the guy you just ratted out, that's an incentive structure that changes the parameters of the game and may, you know, change the, 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 the predictable behavior, the equilibrium. But, but, it, but there really are these sort of predictable behaviors, depending if you can understand the structure of the game. And the one, you know, we're, like I say, we're familiar with, most people are pretty familiar with Prisoner's Dilemma. Most people are familiar with uh, the game of Chicken. Right, if you've ever seen any, you know, movie like Footloose, right, or you know, driving your tractors at each other, with Kevin Bacon, <laughs> you, you know, we're all familiar with that game. Yeah, some people are familiar with a game called the Stag Hunt, which, which I think is is actually pretty important, particularly when you're talking about politics and international relations. But the the, the common knowledge game is is, is one that, that I think most people aren't so familiar with. Even though, like I say, I think it's the game of markets, and and it's hard to get familiar with it because it doesn't lend itself as well to a TV show or a movie, right? It doesn't boil down to a you know a single tense moment, right, of tractors going at each other or you know an interrogation in a in a in a police squad. But the the common knowledge game, and this this goes back to the 1930s when a you know very famous economist then and still today, John Maynard Keynes, came up with this idea. And, and, and I think it's so right. It's, it's really, think of it as like the game theory for crowds, right? And what, what the, the example Keynes gave was what he called the newspaper beauty contest. And this was, you know, back in the, I mean, it sounds crazy today, but, but in the, the 1930s, the newspapers, the social media of the day, uh, they would frequently run a contest where they would run, they would print the pictures of 
10 pretty girls. I, I, again, it's inconceivable to think of this today, but this was really a thing, right, in the 1930s. And they would invite their readers to vote for who they think the prettiest girl is. And send in your vote, and if you, the people who, the, if you vote for the girl who gets the most votes, then those voters will be entered into a sweepstakes drawing. You know, we'll, we'll pick one of those voters' names out of a hat, and you'll win an all-expense-paid trip to Atlantic City for the Miss America pageant, <laughs> right? So, I, again, inconceivable today, but this is really, this was a thing. And so Kane said, well, you know, let's think about how you play this game. He said, you know, what he called the first level of thinking is that you really would look at the pictures and say, oh, I think, you know, top row, third from the right, I think she's the prettiest. I'm going to vote for her. And uh, so you would fill out your little card and you'd send it into the newspaper. That's my vote. And Kane said, well, you know, it doesn't take too long before you realize, yeah, hey, that's that's not the way to win this game, right? The, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to win that prize, that trip to Atlantic City. I, I, I shouldn't be voting for the girl I actually think is the prettiest. I need to vote for the girl that everyone else thinks is the prettiest. You know, what's the consensus view of who the prettiest girl is? Because I, I, I want to be in that sweepstakes drawing. So he called this the, the, the second level of thinking. And then he, he said, but, but then you figure out, he said, well, so first of all, he said, a lot of people don't get past that second level of thinking. But they said, well, most people ultimately do get past it because they realize, well, hell, am, am I the only one who's smart enough to figure out how to win this game, <laughs> right? I, I mean, otherwise, in other ways, the thinking is, is everyone else so stupid that they're going to vote for who they really think is the prettiest girl? Or is it, as Keynes said, is there a third level of thinking where it's everybody trying to figure out what everybody thinks about the relative prettiness of these girls, right? It's, it's not the consensus. It's kind of like, what's the consensus of the consensus? And it, it's that third level of thinking that, that, that Keynes said was so powerful because he said, look, forget about these newspaper contests and, you know, voting for pretty girls. What about the stock market? Where what you're doing when you buy a piece of stock is you're voting. You're saying, oh, I think that's a pretty company. I'm going to vote for that. And, and, and Kane said, you know, the first level of thinking would be to say, ooh, I, I think that company is very attractive. It has great fundamentals and it's got, you know, good cash flow and a sound management team. I'm going to buy that stock. And then you realize, well, no, 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 that's not how I'm going to win. What I have to win is that second level of thinking. I, I want to, I want to buy stock in a company that everyone else thinks is attractive. And then you go to that third level of thinking where you say, well, every isn't everybody doing this? Isn't it the crowd looking around to see the crowd who we think is the most attractive? And Keynes kind of left it at that, and and then in subsequent years. The, and this is how the common knowledge game comes around. The question then becomes, well, how does the crowd figure out what the crowd is looking at in terms of, a, you know, a pretty stock to buy? And, and the answer is you introduce this concept of the missionary. Uh, the, the, in, 
the, the missionary that we, we call that in game theory because the there's a famous thought problem about how the crowd figures out what the crowd is thinking. And the, 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 the game or the game, the thought experiment usually goes by the, the name of the, the island of the, the green eyed tribe. And so the, the setup for this thought experiment is, all right, there, there's, there's, there's an island. All the people there on the island have blue eyes. It is taboo to have green eyes, meaning that uh, if you do have green eyes, you have to leave the island immediately. The, the, the next day, you have to get in a canoe and you have to leave the island uh, immediately. Uh, but what's also taboo on this island is to talk about eye color. And in this thought experiment, there are no mirrors on the island. So, you know, so there could be people on this island who have, you know, green eyes, but they'd never know it because nobody's going to tell them, hey, you've got green eyes, you need to leave the island. And there are no mirrors, so you'd never look at yourself and you'd say, oh, I've got green eyes, I've got to get off the island. But then one day, you know, so this, this island, even though it has this taboo structure where green-eyed people have to leave the island, uh, it can nobody ever leaves the island, and life goes on happily, you know, for 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 generations until one day the missionary comes, and the missionary gets there, and you know he's going to tell you know the truth to people, and so he gets up there, stands up on a on a box, and he says to everybody on the island because you know he's not part of their taboo system, he says, I just want you to know. There are people here on this island with green eyes. And so then the thought question, the thought experiment is, okay, well, what happens next? And what happens when the missionary comes up and makes a statement like that is that the missionary is creating common knowledge. Common knowledge is what we all know that we all know, (laughs) right? So before the missionary said that, each of us, each of those islanders individually knows that there are people on the island with green eyes, but that thought stays inside their head. Right? After the missionary makes that public, makes that public statement, the people in the island, it doesn't change what each individual islander knows, but now they know that everybody knows. Now they know that everybody knows. So, so the question is, what happens? Well, the answer to the question is, <clears throat> if there's the answer is trivial if there's one person on the island with green eyes, right? Because now that there's common knowledge that there is at least one green-eyed person on the island, that one person who has green eyes looks around, he looks at everybody on the island. You know, it's a small island; you can see everybody. He says, "Well, everybody on this island that I see has got blue eyes." And he goes, oh, shit, that must mean I'm the guy. So the next morning with one islander with, with, with green eyes, one, one islander leaves on his canoe the, the next morning. But then there's a question, well, what happens if there are two islanders, two tribes people that have green eyes? What happens then? The answer to that, the answer to this thought experiment is that for every N Islanders with green eyes, they all leave simultaneously 
n days later, right? So how does that work? Well, the two the the, the two islanders are there with 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 green eyes. Each one of them looks around and says, "Oh man, Joe over there, he's got green eyes. He must be the guy that the missionary was talking about." So he waits till the next morning and he says, "Well, wait a second, Joe over there, he." He must have seen that we've all. Why? Why did? Why is he still here on the island? I mean, he must have looked around. He must have seen that we all have. Oh, oh no. Joe must have seen somebody with green eyes. And if I see that everybody's got blue eyes except Joe, that must mean that I have green eyes. And the same process is going through Joe's head. So both Joe and and I myself, we both leave the morning of the second day. Right, so I've gone through this long example, and the the the, the point of this is this this is so much, <laughs> you know, how markets work, where it's nothing, nothing, nothing for a long period of time, and then boom, a lot of people leave the island on the same day. This process of creating common knowledge, and then all of us looking around at the crowd to say, "Am I the only one who's out of step here?" That's the way this works. There's a time element to the creation of common knowledge and the way that it hits a market. The more people who share the, I'll call it the the non-common knowledge view, the longer it takes for the break in the narrative, but the bigger it will be. So these are the kind of principles, these game theory principles, that once you start applying it to the creation of common knowledge, these missionaries, these people who create narratives, once you start analyzing and measuring how much these narratives are successful in creating a common knowledge, how many people are, let's call it, off target, right? Have green eyes when the common knowledge says you need to have blue eyes. That inserts a time element and then a magnitude element for what the the dislocation is going to be for markets. It's an incredibly powerful framework for understanding very predictable patterns of crowd and market behavior. And it's the sort of thing that is totally ignored, isn't even the right word. It's the dark matter for how, you know, we are told that we need to spend our time doing to try to understand how markets work. So again, sorry for the long-winded talk, but man, this stuff is so powerful once you start wrapping your head around it. Ben, there is so much to unpack there because what it does is it absolutely flips investing on its head. It's basically saying like all of the models that you thought were real and true and imbued in the fabric of reality investing they're manipulatable by missionaries by the you know by social structures like like the social system is at the base layer and that can be fundamentally manipulated well it makes them it makes them time dependent too right it makes them have an expiration date there's a half-life to these narratives it's once you start measuring and visualizing narratives and and that's that's the that's the focus of our research so so the 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 company you know i started two years ago 
partners, we call it second foundation partners, you know, after the Isaac Asimov second foundation, and uh, which is a whole other story, right? But, uh, but, but the, the research we're talking about is called natural language processing, NLP. And these are ideas that have been around, you know, I was writing about this stuff 30 years ago in academia. The, the problem 30 years ago, though, was that, you know, we had all the, the, the ideas and the formulas and the, you know, the models for how to look at this. We just didn't have the computing power, hmm. right? We, did, we didn't have the fire hose of data that we can get where I can get everything that's published in the world and transcripts of everything that CNBC, you know, vomits out there during the day. Or even Twitter. Or tw- oh my God, or Twitter, right? I can get all of that and I can run it through as much computing processing power as I want through AWS or Azure or whatever. And our ability to now measure and visualize the structure of narrative, it, it, it's, it's like discovering a, a microscope, right? It's like somebody handed you a microscope in the 1700s. <laughs> and, and, and they said, yeah, here, look, look at this under the microscope. And they, 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 they put a little piece of glass and a, and a little drop of dirty river water on there. Or, and, and you look at it through the microscope and say, holy shit, there's a whole world that's inside there. Yeah, and it, it's the base layer of everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's what it means to be a social animal of, you know, humans, there are four incredibly successful species of animals on the planet. There's the bee, there's the termite, there's the ant, and there's the human. It is not a coincidence that these four species that dominate the world were social animals. Mm -hmm. And and there are, you know, a few definitions of social animals. It's, uh, you know, multiple generations that live in the same nest, uh, you know, shared taking care of the young, the brood, right? But the, but the most important characteristic, the, 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 the sine qua non for what it means to be a social animal is that you swim in an ocean of intraspecies communication, right? For the bee, the ant, the termite, that's mostly pheromones. It's mostly chemical communication, which they literally swim in. We are no different. It's not chemicals, it's our words. And, and, you know, think about during the day, how many messages you receive from other humans. And, and the answer is, it's, for a typical human, it's like five or 6,000 discrete messages every day. And we don't recognize them, you know, discreetly and, and, and consciously. We couldn't, we'd go nuts, right? But we all know that we that we swim in this ocean of communication. And just over the last couple of years, it's possible now to actually measure it, to visualize it, what I like to call narrative world. And now it, it, it's really possible today to, to, to actually start to measure and put some some, some numbers behind these games like the common knowledge game so that we can actually try to predict and anticipate human behavior in ways that just weren't possible before. So Ben, I think this has two really interesting implications, right? So the the first is a bit of a red pill probably for some of our listeners Yeah, that the, the things that we call fundamentals, right? Um, 
you know, stocks have fundamentals, uh, yep. your profit margin, these sorts of things. Um, the things that we thought were so sturdy, the found like the foundation, it's not actually the foundation. The foundation runs deeper than that. And even those fundamentals are based on narrative because the social system, you know, uh, is, is what essentially puts in fundamental metrics, right? Like, why do we yeah. think discounted cash flows should um, be the basis for valuation of the company? Well, because Wart- Wharton School of Business teaches it. Basically, right, right? right, and every all the MBAs believe it, and therefore the market believes it, right? Yeah, that's the it first was, implication. You know, I, let me let me interrupt you there, right? Because yeah. it's it's not that it's not that things like fundamentals and cash flows and and the like it it's not that any of these models and lessons and principles it's not that they're wrong, right? It's whether they are useful. So, 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 so let me give you an example. So, you know, it's the difference between Newtonian physics and Einsteinian physics, right? It, it's not that Newtonian physics is wrong. It's that in certain circumstances, like you're going really fast or you're dealing with, you know, the, you know, gra- you know, something the size of the sun, right? It doesn't work very yeah, well. Yeah. They're non-predictive. Right. So, so that, that's right. So, so, Einsteinian physics, it's not that Newtonian physics is wrong, it's that it is a subset of a broader concept that we'll call Einsteinian physics, right? And in markets, it's exactly the same thing. So, you know, Ray Dalio, the uh, founder of Bridgewater, uh, which is just down the street from me, and, and look, for my money, Bridgewater is the best, smartest hedge fund on the planet, and I, I, I've got, I've got, Honestly, I've got nothing but good things to say about those guys. I mean, they're weird as shit, right? Don't get me wrong. You know, I could never work there, and you know, there are a lot of stories, and I know a lot of stories. <laughs> but but I think they're fantastic, right? For yeah. what they do and managing other people's money and being really smart about yeah, it. Yeah, Ray's writing mm-hmm. alone is just fantastic. It's it's really good, right? I, I mean, anyway, well, that's a whole other podcast <laughs> to go down, right? But 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 you know, Ray's core idea around markets is what he calls the economic machine, mm-hmm. right? And, and he describes, frankly, everything as a machine, including humans mm-hmm. and the way we think, It's, which is the whole other conversation we can have. But what, what Dolly was talking about when he says there's an economic machine, and that's how you under, should understand markets and, and, and stocks, he's not wrong, right? It's, it's, it's like, it's like, Newton isn't wrong when he says F equals MA, right? But there's a larger system mm-hmm. that encompasses the economic machine. I'll call it the narrative machine mm-hmm. that in certain periods of time, your old fashioned narrative machine, uh, economic machine, your old fashioned Newtonian physics, it just doesn't work very well. And ever since the great financial crisis, and this will finally return to that idea you introduced early on, the, the idea of the three-body problem. Our, our old ways of understanding, like Newtonian physics, like the economic machine, they just haven't worked, mm-hmm. right? They just haven't been very useful. Mm-hmm. And I really think it's because not that they're wrong per se, but because there is a larger machine, the narrative machine, I like to call it, like I say, that is all that 
is like Einsteinian physics, right? It's it it's the thing you need to to, to really focus on to to be useful when you know the world the world gets a little crazy like it has over the last 10 Absolutely. years. Absolutely. So, so the world is getting super crazy right now. And I think this is where, yeah, the, yeah. where the conversation is going to start to converge on the topic of, of crypto. But how we are yep. getting there first, I feel like starts with the conversation of what happened in 2008, where the, the markets were in turmoil and the Fed started to integrate itself into the economy, into the market. Um, by propping it up, right? Yeah, and the yeah, yeah, and, and, and Ryan, it wasn't just that the markets were in turmoil, mm-hmm. right? So it it was that there was a non-trivial chance that the entire system would collapse, right? right. right? And mm-hmm. it's I, I I remember this day so vividly. So the, the the hedge fund I was running then, man, we 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 killed it in '08, right? We had, I mean, we were we were early we were right mm-hmm. we were doing we did really well in 08 and in our memory i guess this was kind of september well this is right before lehman was you know was taken out in the street and shot and um you know we'd had a great day i mean we were like five percent that day because the you know the shorts the credit default mm-hmm. swaps everything was working for us and 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 i was kind of you know, smiling to myself after the day, and uh, and then it kind of hit me, and it was like, hmm, what if nobody's around to 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 pay me what they owe me? <laughs> yeah, what if the world right, goes right. to hell? It's right. not yeah. a victory. <laughs> exactly right. I I mean, you know, all these big banks, you know, J.P. Morgan owes me a shitload of money on these contracts I have with them. Well, what if J.P. Morgan's not there tomorrow? Right. And you know, and that's. That was what was really at stake there mm-hmm. um, in, 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 in 08. And what happened, you know, as you're describing. To, to, to me, it's the, for going back to the analogy that we were discussing, what happened was the missionary came and started to dictate what the rules are, right? And so the Fed came and said like, hey, you know, JP Morgan is going to be there tomorrow. We, we guarantee it. Right, we are stepping into the free market, and we are guaranteeing a future. And the reason why we are able to do that is because we have the money printer. This is this is coming from the crypto narrative, right? And so, in two thousand eight, a new narrative stepped into play, right? Like a, 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 the epsilon grew stronger in in the face of alpha yeah. and beta, because the the central bank said that the we are going to make sure that the market, the free market, moves in the direction that we want it to which I think has uh, generated a substrate between 2008 and now coronavirus that uh, some people may call um, moral hazard in some ways, uh, which would uh, the messaging from the Federal Reserve, which controls the dollar, which gives them the power to control the narrative in the first place, offers the market the backstop, the perceived backstop that will always be there and has thus created this insanely strong V-shaped recovery because of the narrative that the Federal Reserve is there. And it's the entire narrative, it's the belief in the Fed that is creating the current, um, 
economic conditions that has arisen some of the most crazy manifestations, such as like Hertz going bankrupt and then rallying. We have the Davy Day Trader movement where he he said he he saw he solved the markets, he solved stocks, where because the rules are that stocks only go up. And so we I think we are now starting to see uh, the 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 fact that this missionary comes and makes these statements, what it really is, it's the uh, emperor uh, emperor's clothes uh, par- uh, parable metaphor, right? Where we are now, the, the free market is now starting to identify exactly, p- put their finger right on the pulse of what the, is actually going on here with narratives. Yeah, that's the co- that's that's like the common knowledge we all operate under now, right? Like, yeah, that, it really the is. Fed is it, going it, to. Yeah, the, the Fed's got your back. Yeah. The Fed's got your back. And and so, you know, one kind of historical point and then, you know, on with this. What before we got the creation of common knowledge and I'll call it the the Fed as missionary, right? That that really starts in 2009 with with what they call forward guidance and the like. Before we got there though, and and I I just want to you know, it's important that you know, kind of get this out there to your community, right? For, for everybody to know, because this the history gets rewritten so much. What the Fed and the U.S. Treasury did that before they started, you know, their common knowledge, their narrative missionary work was, um, you know, we're familiar with, with Lehman going bankrupt, but, but then what they did was called the Temporary uh, Liquidity Guarantee Program. Uh, this was in October of 2008. And what they did there, this is where they really took action, not words, but action to uh, prop up, to rescue the big banks. Because what they did in this program was they they put the full faith and credit of the United States government behind the unsecured credit of federally chartered banks. All right, what the hell does that mean? What that means is that the next day, Goldman Sachs became a federally chartered bank and over the next few weeks issued about $30 billion worth of of corporate debt that was backstopped, that was co-signed by the U.S. government. And it it was that program that saved the system. I understand that. But it was that program that also makes me so angry when I hear guys like Lloyd Blankfein and you know all the other Goldman Sachs guys says, "Oh, we weren't bailed out. We, you know, we we stood on our own two feet." That's bullshit. <laughs> That's bullshit. Yeah. Right. So in 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 late two thousand and eight, the federal government put the government to backstop the debt of every federally chartered bank. And, and, and so the, you know, like, I like to call it, say, you know, I, the, the pleasant skin of capitalism for me was ripped off in 2008. And I could see just the, the naked sinews of power below that. Hmm. Right. And, and so that exists Right. So what what and so what's what's been created over that the new skin is this skin of narrative and missionary work and the like, which 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 you you described very well. And by the way, Dave Portnoy is exactly right. 
right? That's the thing. He's exactly right. Oh, he nailed it. Because he got it absolutely what, perfect. And he's making happened. money off of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And he's like, you know, to use your story of the, the emperor's new clothes, he's like the little girl in the crowd who says, hey, the emperor's naked. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not, it's not fundamentals and, oh, what's what does this analyst say about the earnings potential for stock XYZ next week? Point is exactly he's, right. He's saying the quiet shit. part out loud. Hey guys, we're gonna pause the interview with Ben real quick and just talk about some of our fantastic bankless sponsors. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum. So what, th what that means is that you can deposit your assets into Aave and then take out a collateralized loan or simply deposit just to earn an interest rate. So you pay an interest rate for borrowing, you earn an interest rate for supplying, but what the magic of Aave offers you is stable interest rate loans, which is a really important money Lego for building out a bankless revolution. Having an interest rate that doesn't change under your feet is really important for long-term thinking and being able to plan out your own personal finance futures, but also make strong business decisions based on an interest rate that you can depend on. In addition to their stable interest rates, there's also flash loans and flash loans are where you can borrow any amount of any asset for without any collateral, so long as you are also paying it back in the same transaction. The use cases for this are absolutely endless, and I'm really optimistic that some creative developers are gonna make some really cool tools using the Aave Money Lego system. We have been watching Aave climb the DeFi Pulse leaderboard, just growing and growing and growing in the assets deposited into their application, which just shows how strong of a system they have created. So you can go and check them out at Aave.com, deposit crypto to start earning or borrowing any Ethereum wallet works, so check it out. I want to tell you about another bankless tool that I personally use. It's fantastic. This one is for our US listeners. It's called Rocket Dollar. So if you have an IRA or a 401k, the problem is it's jailed inside of your brokerage. So your Fidelity account, your Schwab account, that means you don't have good access to crypto. The only crypto that you can buy is in a trust form and it's marked up like 5x, 6x, 8x the price. You're getting ripped off. So what you need to do is break your retirement account out of jail, set up something called a self-directed IRA or self-directed 401k. We've written articles about this on Bankless that we'll include in the show notes. We've written articles about this that we'll include in the show notes. Rocket Dollar takes care of all of the pain in getting set up. They help you with the paperwork. You can break your retirement account out of jail and also use the bankless code to get $50 off. So make sure you use that code bankless when you sign up on rocketdollar.com to get $50 off. All right, let's go ahead and get right back into the interview with Ben Hunt. Okay, so, so, so the byproduct of this, right? So missionaries are incredibly powerful because they can set narrative, particularly missionaries that are already in power. Nation state missionaries might be the most powerful of all. And those are the ones at the central bank. So now we're operating under this new common knowledge narrative that stocks only go up because yep. that's what the Fed wants. But the byproduct of this is something we talk about an awful lot on bankless, right? Like the name bankless is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like the goal of doing less with banks, adopting protocols rather than banks where we can, being self-sovereign over your money, because the byproduct of everything that we've been talking about is we've created what you call the nudging oligarchy. 
Can yep. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, look, I, I talk about the nudging oligarchy, and I talk about the nudging state. And and what I mean by that is that, you know, we don't we don't live in a Orwellian 1984 world where the you know in that that book famously the the image of the state was a boot you know crushing the face of humanity for all time right that was that was the that was the uh the self-proclaimed image of the state and that's that's not the image of our state even though in 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 many ways it and the oligarchy you know the corporate interest are and I know I sound tinfoil hattish with this stuff, but 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 maybe not to to, to your audience. You're in good company, it's, sir. Yeah, it's really real, right? This this shit's real. It's not a jackboot, you know, smashing the face. It's a it's a smiley face button. That's what it is. <laughs> right? So so you know I use a lot of imagery and pictures in 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 you know when I write on epsilon theory, and and I think the image I've used the most, and some of your audience will get this reference, is the. Um, you know, there's this this you know fantastic um, you know graphic novel. Uh, it became a you know an okay movie, right? Watchmen, right? And so the the, the image of Watchmen is is that is that smiley face button uh, with the, the the blood dripping down it. You know, a few drops of blood dripping down it. And and that that to me is like the perfect imagery of what i mean about the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy it's 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 not done by you know jackbooted thugs it's done by narrative by this smiley face narrative of oh what wait 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 you're you're going to to buy crypto don't don't you know that you know crypto is used by terrorists what are you are you supporting terrorism you know right that that's what that's what a nudge is that's what a nudge is. And, they, and they, by the way, and they, that's they, so powerful. They have to do that nudging in the West because of our social contract, because of Western liberal democracy social contract. But in other places in the world, you know, it might be a bit more like 1984-ish. Um, China, oh, for, sure. for instance, uh, oh, Russia right, sure. is just a out but, in the open but, oligarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Russia for sure. But 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 China's an interesting case, right? Because because you know China is moving much more in the direction of nudge. So, so, so take their kind of their social credit system, right? And you, you know, familiar with this, right? Where there's this yes. national database where everything you do, and it's a very black mirror kind of thing. I mean, it's, it is a black mirror thing. Everything you do, every action you take can be recorded and goes into your score, right? It's like your credit score, except it's your social score. Mm-hmm. And like that a includes citizen score. the citizen, right? And that includes the people you talk to you know, you know, where you travel, what you do. And so what you find is that people, they, they, they self-control, right? They, 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 they start to censor themselves. It is this self-censorship that is the goal of the nudge, right? Because, and, and look, it makes a lot of sense. It's so much cheaper to get people to censor themselves than to force compliance, you know, with you know more policemen and everything else. It, it's it's the it's the whole notion of you know this Jeremy Bentham, this this uh, late eighteenth early nineteenth century British thinker, you know, talked about the Panopticon, mm-hmm. and it was his model for how you would design a prison 
with minimal guards. Right? And, and, and the way the panopticon works is on self-censorship, on self-regulation, because you see in the middle of your prison, you can see all the other prisoners. And again, this is game theory. You know that the other prisoners can see you. And, and when, you are, when you are being watched like that, and you know that others can be watching you, you censor yourself. You control yourself. And, and it's, again, it's a, it's a very predictable pattern of human behavior, and you're increasingly seeing governments take advantage of this. And, uh, and now, and, Ben, what we have yeah. is the Panopticon meets Moore's Law, because right, they right, can be right. so much more efficient when, exactly. they have, of, when they have the power of digital technology. So, you know, one thing that China is doing, for instance, you talked about nudging, right? And uh, yeah, I agree with you. That's, they're doing it digitally as well. Um, mm-hmm. But they are uh, creating a central bank digital currency, basically. Yep. So the ability, it, it's just an entry in a ledger, a centralized ledger. It's nothing, nothing public blockchain or crypto about it, nothing really free about it. It's a state apparatus. And that gives them the power to freeze your bank account to take your money at a will, to track every single commerce transaction that you do, to eliminate you from the economy, tie that to the, to the good citizen score. Hey, uh, Ryan, guess what? Come, coming soon to a liberal democracy near you. Exactly. Right, right. right? The, I mean, the Nordic countries have pretty much already moved to this as well. Right? I, I, figure, I figure it'll be the, you know, the, the, 2022, um, you know, dollar rescue or, you know, anti-terrorism bill that'll do that in the United States. Well, especially, and you've got, you've got more fodder because uh, you just game theory and you just say nation state against nation state. Well, the U.S. says in order to compete against China, we need to recruit Mark Zuckerberg and team to create Libra for us. Libra. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wrote a long piece on this. I mean, it's the co-opting of, and this is what governments always do with financial innovation, right? Which is, which is one of the reasons, and I you know, may well, you know, this is one of the paths for us to go down. It's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm not a, uh, what's my attitude towards, I'll call it towards Bitcoin. I'm, it's not that I'm a skeptic or a cynic is that it, I just, I've, what always happens is that governments co-opt these financial innovations and they take, I like to call them the, the coyotes, the clever coyotes. I'm a coyote, right? We're too clever by half. (laughs) We're too smart for our own good. We don't see the forest for the trees they they kill the coyotes. It, you know, governments are in the business of coyote control, and and I've and I've just seen this too many times, and I I, I just I, I see the path this is on. I am so sympathetic to the goals and the ends. We agree so much on the where we need to be going in the world. I am so. Certain's the wrong word. I, I'm, I, but I'm. I really believe that the the tactics and the strategy to get to that desired endpoint um, 
I don't think you can fight the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy on this hmm. battlefield of money. Mm-hmm. I, I think that is that is the sine qua non, that is the raison d'etre here. I'm using lots of foreign languages here. <laughs> That's why governments exist is money. Right? right. Seniorage. So, it's this this is this is what a government is. It is the control over money. It is existential to a government. They do not want to give up that power and will not do right. so easily. They can't. They can't. Right. It, it is their power. And so there's, exactly. there's a, a direct relationship between the size and spending of the military and the ability to print money to back that system. Like the 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 power and spread of the United States of America as a um, empire, regardless of whether we actually like, we don't actually control the EU or South America, but we kind of do because of the dollar, right? It is the power that backs the United States. And this is kind of where I want, I I, I know you just expressed um, maybe some apprehension or some cautiousness about uh, Bitcoin as a successful alternative to this. However, uh, when we talk about the nudging state, uh, we do have to also include the fact that that Bitcoin and Ethereum, me and Ryan are, are more um, uh, representative of the Ethereum community more so than the, the Bitcoin yeah, yeah. community, although, yeah. although we do believe in the power of Bitcoin. What these things represent is the ability to exit, right? And exiting this, the uh, option to exit the system, we hope offers a check on the ability of the nation state to nudge. Because if the nation state nudges you in, the, in a direction you don't want to go, you may have the option to exit out of the system. Um, yeah. And while I don't believe that like the, this is just going to be a peaceful transition, there's going, it's going to, there's gonna be a ton of conflict in a bunch of different ways. The, the mere ability to exit might put limits upon how far a nation state can nudge its citizenry. It, it kind of puts yeah. the nation state almost, uh, you know, rather than nation state versus crypto, it's like nation state versus people, right? Are you going to strip away the people's ability to buy Bitcoin or transact in it? That's a slippery slope for a Western democracy. Yeah, I, I think yes and no. It depends. It, it depends how existential it gets. For that nation, right, right. So, I, I, I actually think that the, and, and look, I, I, I totally get what what you're saying. There are clear, I hate to use this phrase, but I will. There are clear use cases for Bitcoin that are crucial and critical, um, in lots of places around the world. Where, where in a sense the government is at war with its citizenry, right? You know, you can use you know Venezuela, right, or you can say you know you know in Lebanon, right? Um, which is why you know you're in Lebanon. What people want is they want U.S. dollars, right? They they don't want you know whatever the you know I should know what the Lebanese currency is. I don't, right? But 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 nobody wants their domestic currency, right? They want dollars first and foremost, or they can get a you know the you know if you're if you have the ability to do it, they, they, they would want to get Bitcoin. I, I get those use cases. I get those, I guess I'll call them store of value uh, use cases, because it's very similar to the argument around, you know, Bitcoin's, you know, store of value, like gold, you know, digital, you know, the, the, these sort of arguments. I, I know those exist. I think that works. And I, 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 I'm not arguing with that. 
what I'm saying is that 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 for me, for me, I, I think there's a bigger game afoot that we're all interested in, right? We're all interested in <laughs> liberty and justice for all. We're all interested in uh, how do we reduce, how do we mitigate this nudging oligarchy and nudging state, which which aggrandizes, which takes more and more control over our our bodies, our minds, that's the worst part, the, our autonomy, you know, day after day after day. And I, I think the risk of focusing on the use cases that you're describing, which I'll call it kind of the, the gold store of value use case you're describing, they're absolutely right. What I think we all have to be mindful of here is that the ability to be ghettoized, the ability to, for powerful states to pat you on the head and say, <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes, you go over here and you play with your little friends who you know, also talk about gold all the time. Yes, yes, yes. Isn't that cute? Right? That's what happens. And that's been the life of the gold bug. And, I, and I'm using that term, that pejorative term. I, I think of myself as a bit of a gold bug, right? I believe in these use cases you're talking about for Bitcoin. Right? But what, what you see in the community of people who follow gold and the like is that they've been ghettoized. It's a miserable way to live because basically what you find yourself doing is you find yourself, in a sense and over time, hoping for catastrophe. Right, because you think, well, I just, you know, man, if the system really collapses, I'll, I'll be sitting pretty then. And, and it's like, really, dude, that's they, they, they call it the Bitcoin Citadel idea that like right. yeah. Yeah. hell and miners yeah. are in the Citadel and they just watch from their palaces. <laughs> yeah, and and I've at least I've I've lived that to an extent, and it's just it turns you into a grumpy grandpa. It's it's a I turned you into a maximalist using using crypto terms. I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I I get the use cases you're describing. I believe in the use cases you're describing. I personally believe in the use cases you're describing. I think though, in my in my professional life and in the this the movement I'm trying to create though, I'd like to. I'd like to go after bigger game, <laughs> you know, and 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 that 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 may be a, a a longer game I have to play. It's a longer hunt, right? I don't think that that the battlefield I want to fight on is not really the battlefield of money per se, uh, because I do think it lends itself either to when the chips really get down, just to be outright crushed on that battlefield, i.e., outlawed, right? But even before then, you end up being, you know, like I say, ghettoized and, and, and turned into this, you know, pat you on the head and, oh, you stay over here and do that. So, so Ben, I have three things to throw at you, but before, sure. I, before I do, just on the, top, on the topic of, of crypto to get your thoughts on, before I do, David, I think, wanted to say something maybe. Well, I was actually just going to make a, a, a distinction between, so uh, like, I, like I said, the, the, the bankless nation that we are trying to build out. Uh, incorporates Bitcoin, but not not just Bitcoin. And I get it. From, I get it from the from the greater outside perspective. You know, I think people know the name Ethereum, but they're far less familiar with it and what it does. And it's and what it does is 
not any one particular thing. And yes. in the in the Ethereum world and the Bitcoin world, we kind of consider these two different nations that are similar but different. And the the goal is to even even though that the nation state does have some control and influence and they can nudge perhaps people away from Bitcoin and, and reduce its meaning, it's also a race, right? Because Bitcoin is a global nation. It's a global financial platform, which every single nation state is, is, or every single citizenry of every single nation state can take part of. And Ethereum is even the same thing, but Ethereum is even more generalizable. And so while uh, I'll totally concede that like, Bitcoin, because it is one singular thing, it's perhaps weaker to the nation state's uh, influence. Ethereum isn't one single thing. It is a platform to host many things. And so the the nation well, state David, can't... I, listen, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because that that mm-hmm. is where what you're describing is exactly where I would love, let's call it the crypto community, to use that kind of in a sense, silly mm-hmm. term, where I'd like to see things go, right? Because because what what I'll use kind of a you know even kind of broader term. I'll call it what I'll call is distributed ledger technologies, right? Which mm-hmm. which underneath that we can include all different you know instantiations of that. Right. What what all this does is I think attack in an incredibly elegant and powerful way, what I think is the Achilles heel of the nudging state and the nudging oligarchy. What I think it does is it solves a problem that must be solved in order to go after the the the, the bigger game that I that I think is 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 possible here. And that is that it solves the problem of distributed trust. Mm-hmm. Solving this problem of distributed trust is at the core of the, again, highfalutin word, movement I want to try to create around, yes, investing, but, but, but more importantly, a fuddy-duddy world, citizenship. Right? How, how do you know that that, person right that 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 touring entity that you're you know talking with on uh, via email or whatever yeah how do you share trust here and 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 finding that sort of permissionless and i know there there that's a that's a spectrum right where where we can talk about that depending on what you know instantiation of distributed ledger you're you're, you're talking about and the, and then different use cases will have different places on that spectrum but but attacking that spectrum problem of distributed trust is at the core of what has to be accomplished mm-hmm. to really get at the big the 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 big game that we want to play here so i get it right so 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 you know moving towards decentralized finance in whatever form and fashion man i am i am i am a total ally of that what 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 I would like to see is I and, and it's and it's difficult sometimes because there's not money directly associated with it. You can't trade this. But I'm looking for finding these these decentralized ways of of I'll say taking back your identity, mm-hmm. taking back your data, taking back uh, you know, your 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 vote and your actions. 
it's it's all underpinned by these distributed ledger technologies that I think really get at this attack this question of distributed trust, and, and that's why I'm so hopeful about the, the 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 energy and the shared goals here. I'm I'm just I'm not particularly interested in playing on that battlefield of money per se, and 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 I and I get the. the Thirty years ago, the you know the 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 twenty six year old Ben would have been all over that, right? <laughs> so I, I I get it, right? But 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 that's not where I am now, and 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 that's at the heart of I, I think where you know you know not that I get misinterpreted, but but the you know the issues I have are around a lot of the the, the, the finance applications of these distributed ledger technologies more generally. So so. so- so Ben, I, I think you know so many millennials uh, read your work and resonate with it because you know you're talking about issues that they care about. Um, yeah. Totally get that you are um, less bullish on the bankless kind of these bankless systems um, usurping or replacing aspects of the nation state and the banks. But maybe you could give us some advice because we think there is still some hope there. And there are kind of three paths, um, I think, by which we might be able to achieve it. So I would be interested in your advice on these three paths and just thoughts, given your game theory experience, given your sort of narrative experience, because those are the realms we're playing in. So let me yeah. let me kind of give you these three different paths, and then maybe comment uh, on each of them. So the first path is this, um, that... There's game theory involved between competing nation states. And the way crypto economic systems work is there is incredible, extraordinary value in getting in early, right? So US is the reserve currency of the world. Uh, How much does China as a supranational power want the US to remain the reserve currency of the world? So China adopts a decentralized currency. It doesn't have to be China. It could be Russia. It could be uh, you know, another, a smaller uh, country. One nation state adopts it, gives them an unfair advantage and forces the other nations to adopt it. And the way it gives them an unfair advantage is through uh, price appreciation, potentially. Um, the first, you know, uh, central bank who starts buying Bitcoin, what's that, what, what's that going to, what, what path will the other central banks have to go down? So there's this idea of game theory of nation states. The, the second is this, this is kind of how the internet was adopted, it became so damn useful, right? So um, did did centralized state governments want an open communication uh, protocol? Did they want cryptography embedded in things like, you know, HTTPS? Not really, but the US adopted it in the early 90s and, um, you know, essentially put it out pro-regulation because it was good for the economy and because it would give them an unfair advantage relative to other nations. So there's the potential. We're seeing things like uh, stable coins on Ethereum that are reaching $10 billion that are essentially bank issued. Uh, we're seeing JP Morgan with their own stable coin. We're seeing um, Coinbase go to an IPO. They become more embedded in our existing financial system and it becomes so damn useful that essentially nation states have to adopt it or they get left behind. Sort of like the internet, they have no other choice uh, other than to remain sort of like a North Korea, right? So that's the second. The third is this, something we've been talking about, which is narrative shift. And this could be 
uh, generational. So there is there is definitely a sense of disenfranchisement with uh, younger generations. Um, you know, millennials feel it. Gen Z is going to feel it even more so that we've missed the boat, that they have missed the boat, that um, the boomers have kind of rigged the system, essentially. Um, God bless boomers. We love them. You know, our p- parents are boomers. Uh, but there's less opportunity today than there was in their generation. So they rise up. They switch the narrative. The missionaries succeed. Dave and I would, would consider ourselves missionaries of a sort. For sure. They succeed in uh, bringing common knowledge that uh, ETH is money. Uh, that's Ethereum's cryptocurrency, that Bitcoin is valuable, that because it's a non-sovereign store of wealth, it's worth holding and uh, you know it's necessary. So essentially the millennials rise up. So those are three paths that possibly this could take and kind of intersect with, with game theory. Like what's your, what's your take on those? What advice would you give you know, the 26-year-old you who was into crypto? Yeah, so I, I, I think that of the three paths you described, I think that the third path, um, there is a variation on the third path that I think could be extremely powerful. Uh, the first two paths you you described, I think, are are um, I, I I think those are those are blocked paths, and and so let me just quickly describe that first, and then I'll. Go on to the third path, which I think there is a viable um, version of that. Right. So, on the the game theory of nations, you know, I'll talk about strong nations first, like a China. It, it's yes, China would like to see the dollar as a reserve currency dethroned, but not because they really care about the dollar. What they care about is their own currency. It, it, what what they're looking to do is to supplant, <laughs> right, the the U.S. or protect their own centralized currency. That's the goal. That's their strategy. That's their goal. So, adopting a decentralized currency uh, is is not aligned with their goals, right? It's so it's it's not just taking down the dollar for sake of taking down the dollar. It's taking down the dollar to the degree that it either protects or elevates their own centralized currency. For weaker nations that might say, hey, you know, I could get some, some as you described, competitive advantage by adopting a decentralized currency and and, and the like. You know, Thucydides, you know, he's the historian of the Peloponnesian War like 3,000 years ago. And again, this whole notion of, of repeated patterns in human behavior. One of the great lines from Thucydides is that the strong do what they will the weak do as they must. And let's take example of a country like Switzerland, right? Pretty strong, powerful country, right? Right there in the heart of Europe, right there in the heart of the international banking system. For a long time, they had a competitive advantage by not having a decentralized currency, but by essentially having a decentralized banking system, right? So you'd get your Swiss bank account and you would effectively be shielded from taxation and other controls that other countries wanted to put on the, the financial system. Well, that's gone, right? Because as soon as the U.S. said, hey, you know what, Switzerland, this is bullshit. Um, Switzerland said, yeah, it, you need to jump, right? That's what the U.S. said. Switzerland said, how high? <laughs> right? So so I think that first path, and you know, we can talk through the different permutations, but you like, I, I really think that's a dead end. The second path about 
I'll say being very useful. I totally get the use cases. I think that that can exist. What happens when you allow, or when JP Morgan kind of takes you under their their wing, come over here, young fella, let me, let me show you how the game is played. What happens is you become yet another table in the casino, right? And that's all you become, right? You're now oh, we're going to set you up over here next to the blackjack section. You're now the, the pie gal table here in the, the, the Wall Street casino. And you can make money from that. You've developed pie gal. You say, fantastic. Great. Congratulations. Right? But that's all you're ever going to be. You're going to be just another freaking game in the Wall Street casino. So you're and saying they, they co-opt it, essentially. Absolutely. They co-opt the movement. That, that, that's right. That's the right. banks do. Now, now, the third, that, that, that third approach you're talking about, the narrative, what, what I think is possible in terms of the, I'll call it, again, the distributed ledger, the distributed trust solution narrative is to do some co-opting of your own, <laughs> to find an, an alliance with, there are two ancient languages of investing. There are two populations of investors. You know, use whatever kind of analogy you want to use here. There are momentum investors, growth investors, same thing. And there are value investors. For the last decade, for the last 11 years, value investors who believe that fundamentals matter have been crushed just crushed for the for the Dave Portnoy reasons, right? That's mm. not what makes stocks move. <laughs> well, what what's possible today is to say, you know what? Let's play a different game, right? Let's not play the 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 public market game of 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 you know the casino here and you know the the this lifting tide for all boats, whether they're crappy companies or you know whether they're bankrupt companies like Hertz or or really good companies that, that that have you know a great management team and cash flows and all that stuff that used to matter. Well, you know what 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 distributed ledger technologies, what Ethereum can play a role in, particularly less so Bitcoin, but especially Ethereum, I think, is in assigning value to and trust in private markets, hmm. such that the fundamentals matter again, meaning that I can trust what the stated fundamentals of this company are, right? It, 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 in a way that I can trust it because they report it, but it doesn't matter in public markets today. I honestly think that there is an enormous reservoir of desire, of hunger for an alternative financial I call it financial system, an alternative financial network of investors and markets and trading that is outside of the public market casino utility that we have today. And that what this your community has is the integral part of that. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I'm, I'm, I'm really thinking about and, and, and writing some stuff on now, because I think there is a natural alliance that can be cemented through the right narratives b- 
between value investors who are as fed up and discouraged with public markets as the Gen Z and Y and Millennium that you're talking about, when you're talking about there's no path for us in this this system we've got, I think there's a real potential marriage or alliance there that could could shake the existing financial system um, and and really create something interesting. So, you know, that's that's really how what I'm working on right now. And I, I, I think that that third avenue you described, I think it's got legs. So, Ben, you think there's a chance. Like, it's not too late. <laughs> I mean, you think... Yeah, and I don't mean that in the dumb and dumber way, right? Where, you know, all of us here telling me there's a chance. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's not what I mean. I... I can see this. I can see this. The, the, you know, I'll, it's just. I'll I mean, like, yeah. so the oligarchs, Ben, they feel so entrenched at the moment, and more and more powerful. So we've got Nasdaq reaching all-time highs, and we've got the prospect of twenty to twenty-eight million Americans being evicted. That's happening at the exact same time. How does that happen? Like, it's you know. Uh, Bankless and and crypto is sort of our escape hatch, right? It's the thing that we are investing in in order to beat back this oligarch, uh, oligarchy. But I guess my question is like, is there hope? Is it too late? Like, yeah, no, there's there's absolutely hope, and okay. I, and, I, and, I, and I tell you why. And and this is the because you know I started writing Epsilon Theory seven years ago, and I was in a pretty dark place, right? And it's like, what the hell? What the hell's going on with the world? And to start writing this and send it out to a hundred people. And then again, through word of mouth, there are a hundred thousand people. It's like, and this is, you know, before your time, but it's the old, you know, police song where, you know, you, you, you toss that message in a bottle into the ocean and then you come back the next morning and there are a thousand bottles that have washed back up on your shore. Right. That's what my experience with Epsilon theory has been. And it's been the most intrinsically powerful and rewarding things ever happened to me. And and that's why I try and 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 I think that you guys are experiencing some of the same thing. Right? Where you're 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 saying, look, guys, that you realize you're not alone. There are tens of thousands, there are hundreds of thousands of not just people, right? But successful people. People who are in this world and they are successful in this world but they are not of this world, right? They, they're, look, they, they're not happy with how things are going either. They know that this isn't right, and they're willing to, hey, you know what? Let's do something about it. So that's what I mean about finding your pack. The pack is there. It's just that you can't recognize them, right? So, so look, we've got, you know, Epsilon Theory's got subscribers in every it's a kind of a game we play, you know, name a financial institution anywhere in the world, you know, a hedge fund, an asset manager, a, a big bank, a central bank. I, I will guarantee you I've got at least one or two subscribers there. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Now, but, but it's like Fight Club, right? I mean, we're everywhere. But the difference here is OK to, to talk about, you know, being part of Epsilon Theory. It's OK to talk about being part of the <laughs> bankless nation, right? You don't have to keep it secret. But the problem is you don't know who these other people are. It, maybe it's mm. the person sitting next to you in your cubicle. Maybe it's not. And, and it's, it, it's, it's finding and it's linking people all around the world 
and what I'll call is an epistemic community, a community of knowledge, not just just a community because, oh, I, I sit next to you in an office. Right? It, this is an incredibly powerful thing. It, it, it's, it's new to the world, the ability to create these epistemic communities. But man, this is how the world changes. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really optimistic about the what... <laughs> I know this sounds crazy because I, I write very pessimistically about the power again of this nudging state and nudging oligarchy, but man, it's happening. I, and, and I, and I feel it. I see it. It's in my, been in my own life. I suspect it's in your guys' lives as well. You, you, you see how this grows and spreads and how there's a hunger and a desire for it. And so I, I, I'm not pessimistic about, where this all ends up. I just want to be very thoughtful in how we fight this so that, you know, we don't get wiped out on a battlefield that has got really bad terrain for us. I don't want to charge a machine gun nest, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So So not not leading by telling Congress that uh, crypto is money and it's here to replace you. (laughs) Don't lead with that is what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. But I, I think I absolutely, you know, it's not the dumb and dumber chance. I, I think there are real avenues here of of creating alliances of similarly both disaffected yet successful in this world and mm-hmm. having, you know, good hearted people who want the same thing, which is a world of liberty and justice for all. Right. You know, imagine mm-hmm. that. And you know, it's going to take a long time, but man, it's happening. So, so Ben, you spoke about these two types of investors, uh, one of which are the value investors who have, have been disenfranchised, right? If you've been right. a value investor, you've been uh, looking for the wrong wavelength. And yep. uh, what's been going, and, and crypto, and, and one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you on, because so much of what you talk about is so incredibly relevant to crypto, which is the narrative, right? Crypto is mm-hmm. primarily narrative at the moment, yeah, yeah. but baked into the narrative of crypto is a return to value investing because of the way that uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and all the sub protocols on Ethereum are inside out. You can see everyone has access to the same amount of information. What is baked into the narrative of you know investing in Ethereum, investing in assets on Ethereum, is that you are actually given the assurances that you need and the information and data that you need to allow a resurgence of value investing. And so that's while- exactly what I'm saying. That's it, right. So it's, it's that you're sharing these same principles that there is mm-hmm. some bedrock that you can trust, mm-hmm. right? And and for value investors, is the fundamentals of a company. You know, can I trust right. that? And more, moreover, can I trust that that work I put into understanding that 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 matters and won't go what, away for for what for what it for what it the value that people mm-hmm. assign to that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with 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 you know Ethereum or Bit, and Bitcoin as well. There's 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 a bedrock there that you can point to and say, mm-hmm. okay, this you can trust. Mm-hmm. Right, is 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 whatever you want to call it, proof of work, or whatever you want to call it. They say this exists. I can trust it. That's the bedrock I'm going to build on, and that sort of shared principle, combined with using the right words and right language, 
Man, I, I, like I say, I think that's got legs. Well, I think we need some DeFi missionaries who can speak <laughs> right to on. the fundamental uh, investors, right? Because that's a cohort that would resonate with what Absolutely. we're talking about, the transparency, so less power to the bankers, yeah. like a more market-driven economy. Yep. Uh, we'll yep. get there. You know, I think the, the crypto anarchy uh, narrative is, you know, for some people, it's not for this group, though. <laughs> And um, yeah, it's uh, it's part of adapting that narrative. Um, ben, what, one more thing I've yeah. got to ask you. So um, this V-shaped recovery in equities, like, were you surprised? How, how is this happening? Is it going to continue to happen? So, you know, we saw the same thing happen in 2008. Uh, and, you know, I wrote a note about this. Uh, you know, what I guess what people forget is that in March of 2008, the the market was down about about 20%. And at the end of March, the uh, U.S. government took an investment bank, Bear Stearns. Uh, they executed it. They, um, they you know, I use this phrase when I'm talking about Lehman. This really happened with Bear Stearns. They took it out into the street and they shot it in the head and they gave the carcass, literally the office building, to J.P. Morgan. Um and that was supposed to be it. Uh, systemic risk was off the table. Bear Stearns was the bad apple. And by eliminating Bear Stearns, all was well. And then, in fact, what you saw in markets was markets went right back up to where they were when they started the year in, in, in 2008. And, you know, if you weren't living it, you tend to forget that stuff, right? Because it, you know, we remember 2008 is, oh my God, markets ended the year down 50%, right? And that's true. But in May of that year, markets were back at their peak for the year. It was, you know, this classic V-shaped recovery in markets. Now, the answer, of course, was, well, Bear Stearns wasn't just a bad apple. It was all the big banks and then starting in May and then really accelerating in the late summer, the markets collapsed to, we know what happened in September and October. So what I, if, if we were thinking about this, you know, in 2008, I would say, uh, this is, this is just what happened then. Uh, V-shaped recovery cause systemic risk is off the table, quote unquote, but you know, we're, we're, we're heading back down. The difference today is that this is that three-body problem that we kind of never quite got around to, but we'll save for <laughs> another time. Yeah. The the central bank intervention in these markets is so much greater today, to Dave Portnoy's point, right? This is the difference between today and 12 years ago, that the central bank is there to actually buy shit, right? And to, to lend money directly to corporations. And if push comes to shove, they'll just buy stocks. They'll just buy stocks. Right? Like Japan already does, and the Swiss National stock Bank does. Stock must go and, up. And, and yes, stocks will go up, right? If the central bank is buying it, so you know that's that's the difference today. I so I don't so the V-shaped recovery did not just surprise me, because that's what happened in two thousand and eight, and that's what always happens when people say, "Oh, it's a short-term thing. We'll have some solution around the corner." I don't think that's the case when it comes to COVID-19. I don't think a solution is around the corner. I think that things are getting worse and will continue to get worse in the United States and other countries. Not in Europe, but 
Thanks but, for your but, but I think it's yeah. I, I think it gets a lot worse before I think it gets any better here in the U.S. How does that impact the stock market? Should make it go down. Whether it will will depend. Is you know, will the Fed say, "Oh, yeah, I guess we'll stop now," or will they do more? And my guess is they'll do more. And that's the common knowledge we have today. And you know, that's why the stock market stays up. It, it tricky, tricky to predict. In fact, impossible to predict. That's what impossible. the three body problem says. Uh, and and by the way, we never quite got to it. We won't have time today. <laughs> But there, Ben, you did a great description of the three-body problem on our friend Dimitri's podcast and Hidden yes. Forces. We will include that in the show notes. There's a oh, good, good section in there. Yeah. Fantastic. So, yeah, we won't we won't leave the bankless nation hanging on that. They, yeah, they good, good, good. Well, the, well, yeah. well, you guys got the, uh, the 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 island of the uh, the blue-eyed tribe. So uh, yes, so, so you got you <laughs> so got. will be a reference a little, point. A little extra, a little different. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, Communities uh, from a uh, you know last thing I I I, th- I think we want to qu- quickly talk about um, we've been talking about how governments have failed us um, but communities are the hope and that's the future. Absolutely, One thing man. that you are doing with N95 masks is getting them to healthcare workers. Can you talk about getting PPP, uh, PPE to healthcare workers and what you guys are doing on that? Well, I, well, thanks for bringing that up. It's something that's very important to me and and it, it and, and I mean that both for what we're doing directly, which is, you know, to date we've we've bought and we've distributed about 100,000, well, more, about 110,000 uh, N95 and KN95 masks, you know, these medical respirators, to more than 1,000 hospitals and clinics and fire departments and prisons and shelters, uh, you know, all across the country, about, about 46 states we've sent them. And we... We don't send them in big batches. We send anywhere from 50 to 200 masks directly to doctors and nurses and EMTs and uh, social workers who have an urgent need for this because we live in this freaking trickle-down society. And it's not just trickle-down when it comes to money. It's also trickle-down when it comes to PPE you know, the, the medical supplies that these heroes, these who are fighting this battle on the front lines, need to protect themselves. So we, we, we started a charity to, to, to raise the money, and then we, we, we buy the masks from, you know, all over the world. And, you know, it's like an underground railroad of masks we set up. And then we, we, we deliver them directly to, you know, the, the people who are really needing it. And I and I I'm, I always want to talk about it because it's a I think it's it it's it's really doing a lot of good in the world, but b is an example of what we can all do, right? We we all think we have to participate on some grand scale, right? And 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 that's what the oligarchs and the states want you to think. The, the fact is that we can all make a difference from the bottom up. We really can particularly if we find our pack, we find it doesn't take a lot of people. It's, it's your family, it's your friends. It's, you know, it's, it's just getting five or six people together and saying, shit, I'm going to do something in my community to make a difference for the other human beings who are in this foxhole. And, 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 and maybe they'll have very different politics and maybe they'll have very different, whatever race class. It, it doesn't matter. And this is how the world really changes. 
It doesn't change from the top down because the sociopaths take it over. It changes from the bottom up. And and it's 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 not sexy, it's not glamorous, and it takes a long time. But this is how the world really does change. And it's why the work you guys are doing is so important to, to create this pack, this nation, like you're calling it. it. It's why I think, frankly, what I'm doing is important too. In the, <laughs> anyway, I get passionate about this stuff. I, I can go on and on. But I'll just leave it at that. Find your pack, work from the bottom up, and watch how the world changes. Because it's not just a virus that's contagious. It's good works like this. It's even more contagious. And um, anyway, man, that's that's why I'm so happy to be on you guys' show because I, I I think you guys are uh, are um, are doing exactly the same thing and getting this message out here. Yeah, we're going to change the world. Absolutely, nations and communities and and everything that we try and organize people by is all underpinned by passion and purpose. And so. Ben, to, to the degree that, that you are leading that charge, we will absolutely follow you. So thank you in that. You got it, man. Thanks for having me on. This was a blast. Ben, it's been a lot of fun. Bankless Nation, that was Dr. Ben Hunt. We have common values, liberty and justice for all. Bankless is about a money system for all. Going bankless is how you join your pack, as Ben mentioned. And I've got a strange feeling that our paths with Epsilon Theory and Ben's work in the Bankless Nation are going to intersect in some way in the future. There's just too many commonalities, too much common value, that um, <laughs> common value system that um, I, I would not be surprised at all. Um, actions for today. One thing you need to do is sign up for Epsilon Theory. Uh, that's Ben's newsletter. It's you know kindred values, and uh, it's a fantastic read. Every time it comes out in my inbox, I am all about reading everything that Ben and his fellow writers uh, are writing about. Also, take a look at his N95 program, the Epsilon Theory N95 program that he talked about. We'll include links to both. The second thing you can do is send this episode to someone who's crypto curious. That's, that's how you invite your friends and family to the Bankless Pack. Give them some exposure if they are seeing the issues that you're seeing with the with the nudging oligarchy and the nudging state uh, this is definitely the community for them last thing we need david i saw that we're at about 70 five-star reviews on itunes uh can we get to 100 you know in the next month or so what do you think hey you know it depends on the bankless nation if the bankless nation will get us to 100 it's it's in their hands and so if you please could go to wherever you listen to podcasts and give us those five-star reviews so we can grow the bankless nation louder and prouder than ever before that is your duty. That is, as a patriot of the bankless world, that is what we need you to do. So if you could go ahead and please do that, we would greatly appreciate it. And the bankless nation would thank you. As always, guys, risks and disclaimers. We talked a little bit about Bitcoin and ETH. Both are risky. Crypto is risky. None of this is financial advice. You could lose what you put into crypto, but we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are excited that you are with us on the journey. Thanks a lot.